0: Today we're continuing on into uh, the last few weeks here of our series in Leviticus. I invite you to go ahead and... That's where we'll be uh, hanging out this morning. Leviticus 23 describes for us uh, a sense of, of holiness in time. We may wonder, well... well how is time holy, and, and why do we need times that are, are set apart in this way? If you can go back to sort of a week, a week and a half ago, many of you were here serving during our summer Bible camp. And for those families who were involved, that probably looked like going kind of at 110% as a family for several days. right? In, in the lead-up, ...in the preparation and then in the uh, implementation of our summer camp. And, and not only was it a, a sort of full-on experience here at the church... ...but then, you know, you'd go home and you'd have to fit your, your work and your chores... ...and all of your other responsibilities in life into that same time and space. And I think, so, last week when, when Friday arrived, a week ago Friday... ...most of us probably came home feeling pretty empty... And exhausted, our our emotional and physical batteries drained pretty low. And that was was the case in our family as well. And so last Sunday when our worship service concluded here and we headed over to the Davis Farm for our service of baptism, I was tired, right? Again, I was was empty of, of energy in many ways. But one of the things I found waiting for me there at the river was this beautiful gift of God's holiness in time and of God's rest. And that came, I think, in a few different dimensions as we gathered there by the river. And the first was was the sacrament of baptism itself. Baptism is one of the most beautiful images, I think, in, in the life we share as a church family of Christ transforming, of Christ renewing, of Christ uh, bringing new creation. And so, as we heard uh, testimonies of faith, as we saw two of our family members enter and, and emerge from the waters of baptism, and as we heard our church pray, powerful prayer over uh, those, those two family members, right? That was that was restorative, it was restful, it was like a, a balm after the busyness of that week. But one of the things that I think is especially beautiful about what happens with baptisms here at JCC is, is not only limited to the ceremony itself, and, and the words, and, and the entering and emerging from the water, but it's also in the way that this church family celebrates baptism ...afterwards, what takes place next. Right, and that we stay together and that the, the big summer picnic comes out... ...and all the kids jump into the river to play. and Some of them practice their baptizing moves on each other. <laughs> I think we had about 60 baptisms on Sunday. Only two of them were authorized, though. <laughs> it was fun to watch. But after a week of, of pouring out as a church family... It felt like God was, was filling us and restoring us in that afternoon of, of just being there by the riverside, of, of doing nothing but resting and worshipping and, and simply being. And I think our family, it was almost 5 o'clock by the time we packed up our chairs and our blankets and headed back home. And I think there is something profoundly holy about those times. They are set apart. ...and they are designed by God for our good. And so today as we move toward Leviticus 23... We, ...we come to a chapter that yet again deals with holiness... ...with set-apartness. And up to now in the book of Leviticus... ...we've seen you know, this, this big theme of, of God being holy in who He is... ...being distinct, being other, being unique... And because He is who He is, He wants us to share in that. Wants us to be holy as He is holy. And so we have commandments early in Leviticus about how to bring holy sacrifices. How to enter into the holiness of worship. In the middle part of the book, there's this section on on being pure and, and made clean so that we can enjoy those spaces of holiness. A few weeks ago, we talked about how God invites us to to see our bodies as holy and as belonging to Him. And our relationships and our communities and, and the life we build together is meant to be uh, reflecting God's holiness. But as we come into the 23rd chapter of Leviticus, God expresses His desire to make holy yet another dimension of our existence. Leviticus 23 describes God giving us the gift of holiness in ...time itself. What does it look like for time to be holy? So let's turn to the 23rd chapter of Leviticus... ...and let me pray for us as we study the Word of God together. Lord, we confess as your people this morning... ...that you are good... ...that you are abounding in love and mercy... And that you are holy. And you have gone to great lengths to make us part of your people. And to communicate that holiness to us. But we trust your heart toward us. Pray that we might be still this morning to receive from you the gift of rest. And worship and celebration in our lives may the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing, be holy in your sight. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Leviticus 23, let me read just the first four verses here at the beginning to start. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, belonging to the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. Remember, there are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred gathering, a sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. And these are the Lord's appointed ...festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. Leviticus 23 begins by describing God's intention to take time... ...take the calendar of Israel and make it set apart. Make it sacred. Make it holy. That they would understand that it belongs to Him. And he does so by communicating these sacred festivals, these holidays in the life of Israel. Now to any of us who are accustomed to working a five-day work week, this idea of of holiday and rest may not seem all that unusual to us. But again, remember who... These are the Hebrew people... Just a year prior to to this time in the wilderness, they were enslaved in the house of Pharaoh. They had spent their lives, they had spent generation upon generation toiling endlessly, ceaselessly... to, ...to build the great cities of Pharaoh's glory there in Egypt... But then through the power of God, the rescue of God, they are led out from that place. They're brought into the wilderness there at Sinai. And God begins to make them new. He makes them a new nation. He makes them a new people. He gives them a new law. And as part of that now, he decides to give them a new sense of time. A new calendar for their existence as a people. And the first piece of that we see back in Exodus. We see it echoed here in Leviticus. It's it's commandment number four, right? To keep the Sabbath day holy. That one day out of every seven is to be set apart. And that these rescued slaves need to stop what they're doing. Cease their work. And simply be. Simply belong to the God who loves them. And has saved them. Time to be restored as people. I think it's fascinating. Anthropologists, sociologists, they'll study uh, the ancient Near East. And nowhere in in that world, and none of the other competing cultures that Israel is surrounded by, do we find this insistence on rest. on, On the holiness of rest. Of stopping and observing the care and the kindness of God toward them. So we have this pattern of of one in seven days is to be a Sabbath day of resting. But here in Leviticus 23, God extends that idea even further out. And he says not only will one day in seven be holy, but but the entire calendar year is, is to be shaped by this pattern of holiness in time. And so in addition to the one in seven principle of Sabbath days... ...he adds seven holy Sabbaths, extra days, holiday Sabbaths to the annual calendar. And and he stretches them out over the course of the year... And this morning I want to briefly look at, at sort of what holiness in time looked like for Israel. What a, what a year looked like. How, how the rhythms worked for them. And the festivals felt for them. I want to think about what it meant to them. And then I want to briefly also talk about what holiness in time and, and rest in those rhythms would look like for us as a people. So in verse 5 we get the, the very first of these holy assemblies or Sabbaths described in, ...in the celebration of Passover. And so, the, the early spring, roughly around March... ...our time, and, and by our reckoning... ...was the time when Israel, as a people... ...remembered how their journey with God began. And God commands them, he says, on the, the first month... ...again, they reckon that the beginning of their calendar year... ...around March... In the beginning of the first month, on the evening of the 14th day, remember what I did for you. And remember how the the angel of God, which brought judgment upon the house of Pharaoh, remember how that same angel passed over you. And instead, led you out of Pharaoh's house into freedom that evening. How God chose to make you his own. And so Passover is the first of these holy days, these holy Sabbaths set apart to God. It's the first holy day each year. And every family in Israel is commanded to reenact this story of their beginning, this story of their deliverance. And they do so by feasting on a Passover lamb, remembering that, that feast of their deliverance. And then in the week that follows, they're to eat only of unleavened bread... And again, that's, that's a part of remembering the story of their ancestors who in great haste fled Egypt and, and they couldn't bring things like bread that needed to rise with them. So they, they took unleavened forms of bread on that journey as they followed God. So the, the Feast of Passover and Unleavened Bread, it's, it's a week-long feast where Israel begins its year by remembering the rescuing power of their God. ...but before they, they come up to the Passover feast each year... ...before the pilgrims would make their way to Jerusalem... Or, ...or wherever the tabernacle happened to be... ...they were told by God to go and cut a single sheaf of grain... ...from their fields just before they leave for Passover. And this was, again, early spring... ...the, the grain is just beginning to emerge from the ground... ...and they're, they're to take that sheaf of grain... They're to celebrate this week of of feasting and unleavened bread... ...and then they bring this new grain to the priests... ...at the tabernacle or the temple... ...just before they leave to go home from the Passover feast. And they place it there with them. And as that feast concludes... ...the priests would wave the grain before God... ...in the presence of God at the temple. And it was was signifying that, that the harvest that was yet to come... ...belonged to the Lord, that it was offered to Him, that they they were entrusting that to the Lord. And then we're told that following Passover, there was then another 50 days which passed in in their annual calendar. And and the grain would grow up, and the, the people would begin to harvest the spring wheat uh, and and Israel would then, 50 days later, they would count off seven weeks or 50 days and they would return again to feast together as a people. And they called this the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, which means 50 days. And and by that time, the, the harvesting of the grain was complete. And each family brought not... Uh, ...not not the, the young heads of grain like they did at Passover... ...but now they brought leavened loaves of bread... ...back to the tabernacle. And these were given to the priests... ...to bless them, for them to eat. And they signified a, an offering of gratitude... ...that God had provided an abundant harvest... ...that God had made their fields productive... ...that God cared for their needs. The Feast of Pentecost... ...was also a time where, remember, the Israelites were told... ...to leave the edges of their their fields unharvested... ...so that the the destitute, that the hungry in the land... ...might also be able to feast at this time of year. That they they could gather in this portion of the harvest... ...set aside for them. So we have the, the feast of Passover... ...beginning the year in Israel as a time of deliverance... Then we have the Feast of Pentecost, which comes as a reminder of God's faithfulness and provision. But there's something about when God commands rest and God commands celebration and God commands blessing that follows in patterns of seven. And so they're they're told, remember, work six days, rest on the seventh. God says, I'm adding seven bonus Sabbaths, seven, seven bonus days of rest to the annual calendar. And when they come to the seventh month of their year, which is roughly late September or early October, by our reckoning, at the start of that seventh month, they get an entire month of of holy time. They have a a month filled with three festivals, almost back to back to back, what, what Jews today call the High Holy Days. And that holiest of months, that carving out of holiness in time begins with the blast of trumpets on Rosh Hashanah. On the morning of that first day of the seventh month, right, everyone would be awakened to the sound of a, of a shofar, of a ram's horn being blown. Up to 30 times right, it would blast out and it would announce the, the arrival of this holy time, of this time of celebration ...of approaching God, of receiving what He desired to do. And we're told elsewhere in in the rabbinic teachings... ...that the blast of the trumpet is is meant to be like a herald... ...announcing the arrival of a king. The blast of the trumpet is signifying to Israel... ...that God desires to be king over Israel... ...and there to welcome Him and to rejoice at His coming. And so Rosh Hashanah is this this signal on the first day of the seventh month to prepare, to rejoice, to celebrate, to feast. But it also reminds Israel that in just ten days, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, is soon arriving. And we talked about the Day of Atonement a few weeks ago. It's described in great detail in chapter 16 of Leviticus. And, and the Day of Atonement was not necessarily a day that began with celebration. In fact, it's the most somber, right? It's the most solemn Sabbath day of the year. And it was a day, if you recall, when the high priest would go into the holiest place in the temple in order to make atonement for the people, to make atonement for their sins, to purify and to cleanse them in every respect. On Yom Kippur, the the Jewish people then were to abstain from food and drink. They were to abstain even from washing. And they were to devote that day with with a posture of repentance and prayer to to inviting God to to renew them and to restore them and to cleanse them. But we're told that over the course of time, a, a custom arose that... That at the end of the Day of Atonement, as the priest completed his work there in the temple, or now in in modern Judaism where there is no temple to offer sacrifices in, at the end of that evening when the final prayer is prayed in the synagogue and atonement is is made for God's people, there is an eruption of celebration and rejoicing that takes place at sundown. And, And a great feast comes out after that day of fasting. And, and there's this great rejoicing that God has purified his people. God has received him, them. That he's made them holy. He has set them apart once again. And so it's, it's cause for great celebration. And so there's a, a great meal brought out that, that night at the end of Yom Kippur. And then five days later, another week long feast begins. It's called the Festival of Sukkot, or Tabernacles. And Sukkot is the most joyous time of the year in Israel. Sukkot for, for seven days is a festival that remembers... ...how God provided for his people... ...in their years of wilderness wandering. How God gave them water to drink and food to eat... ...and places of rest. And also how God eventually brought them into the bounty of the promised land. And so at Sukkot... ...all of Israel was commanded to go out of their permanent homes... ...and to build temporary dwellings outside... ...and in such a way that they could see the evening sky and see the stars. And for seven days they live in these sukkahs, or temporary tabernacles. And they take their meals there together... ...and they celebrate together and they feast with one another... And it just so happens that this feast also coincides with the arrival of the the late summer harvest. Things like dates and and grapes and olives. And all of these things would be brought forth to feast on. The the wine that was produced from them, Israel would rejoice with. And according to the, the, the rabbis, according to the Mishnah, tabernacles was a time where you were commanded to rejoice. You have to eat and drink well. ...fully, abundantly. And the practice of mourning is actually prohibited for those seven days. And every day they they sing and they chant the, the halal psalms... ...the psalms of pure praise. And so Tabernacles is this huge holy party... ...where Israel rejoices in God's unmerited goodness... So sometimes our our impression, right, these are the the cycles, the festivals of Israel. Sometimes when we look at a book like Leviticus, we think holiness is all about abstaining. Holiness is all about rules and and regulations and and morality. And and yes, that's part of how God pulls us apart and, and makes us holy and separates us. But this chapter makes it clear that God also communicates holiness by providing deep times of rest to his people. God makes us holy by giving us times to remember as a people. God makes us holy by providing times of of jubilation and rejoicing for his people. And if you look at at all of the the festivals described here, there's a, a pattern. All of them include, I think, at least three basic things that change the way we're meant to see time. First of all, all the festivals require a time to stop. All of them include at least one or two extra Sabbath days attached to the the usual one and seven Sabbath. And so there's this extended time where no one goes to work, no chores are done around the house, the lawn doesn't need to be mowed, nothing productive ...happens. But instead, they're, they're set apart... They, ...the people stop so that they can simply be... Right? ...so they can exist... ...so that they can worship in the presence of God. And that, is, that is a gift that re-imagines what time is for... ...by stopping. Second, each festival intentionally provides... ...a time of remembering. Right? It's embedded in these festivals... Every festival retells, remembers part of Israel's story. They rehearse how God rescued them at Passover. Right? How he sustained them at Pentecost. How he forgave them on the Day of Atonement. How he made his home with them as a people. And so we too need times where we stop, but also we remember. We look back at where God has brought us from where we remember what it means to be his people, what it means that we belong to him today. God kind of restores us in this time by restoring who we are, right? telling us what he's done. Remember. Finally, all of these, cele- uh, all of these times include space and time for celebration. Right? God invites us to worship him, not just with Words, but also through the use of our palates and the use of our our passions and and our praise, music. Leviticus 23 invites days of feasting and dancing and singing from God's people. God commands the the best fruits of the harvest to be brought forward and to gather families and communities to celebrate on those times. Now, the, the beauty of... ...living in ancient Israel... ...was that these patterns of stopping and remembering and celebrating... ...were embedded in the national consciousness, right? They were commandments. Right? The the nation observed them together. And even today, if you were to visit modern Israel... ...you would see that at Thursday night... ...every Thursday night at sundown... ...all of Israel pretty much stops, right? The taxis stop running, the buses stop running... All the cafes closed down. At Passover in modern Israel, if you go to buy a Big Mac... ...they serve it to you on unleavened buns. (laughs) Crackers. These these practices are are infused in in the cultural consciousness. But but for you and I, we don't necessarily live in, in a culture or a time or a place... ...that's familiar with these rhythms, right? For us, they have to be choices we make ourselves. Right? They require intention. They require the formation of our own habits. Even though the holidays we do celebrate within the church... ...things like Easter or Christmas or Pentecost... Right, ...how often do we actually set those days apart? How often do we really give our, our full attention and energy... To, ...to allow ourselves to rest and remember... And celebrate in the presence of God. So I want to just leave with, with a couple ideas about how God might invite us in this contemporary time and place to reorder our sense of time. The first, I think, is to take seriously this idea of a weekly Sabbath, of one day every week where you actually cease and desist and stop. Our pastor, when we lived in Vancouver, uh, a guy named Ken Shigematsu, he said that the, the, the Sabbath day was commanded by God, was issued as a commandment because otherwise we never would stop as human beings. Right? If we wait, he says, until all of our work is done, until every task that's clamoring for our attention is finished, then we will never stop working. Right? That day never comes. Instead, we need a fixed time, one we've already marked out, a a holy time, a set-apart time, where he says we get to shuck the have-tos and allow God instead to recreate us. We get to be present to God. Again, I think there is some flexibility in in the implementation of this and, and how we understand it. For me, as a pastor, Sundays are both a day of work and of worship. And so our families tried setting Friday aside as as a Sabbath. And Probably the most challenging part of that practice is when Thursday afternoon comes and there's still things to do in the office and there's still things I want to add to my sermon and, and, and there are all these ideas, right? Taking those loose ends and entrusting them to God's care for a fixed amount of time. And Entrusting them to God so that I can be present to Him. I can be present to my family. I can go for a walk or a long run. I can sleep. Right? There's always going to be the temptation to work further and to work harder and to measure up to some set of expectations, whether they're ours or someone else's. And so that's why Sabbath keeping is a, is a discipline. Right? You have to choose it. You have to choose to to put those things aside. But I could tell you numerous stories of people in all kinds of professions, not just pastors, business people, people that work in the trades, that when they have given themselves seriously to this discipline of resting, choosing intentional rest in God's presence, God makes them fruitful, God refreshes them, God honors that by, by providing for them in other ways. So let me just challenge you this week in your prayer life to pray this prayer. God, where in my life would you like me to do less? Where in my life do you want me to stop? Where are you not asking me to do more, but asking me to experience more of your rest? And see, see if he challenges you in somewhere, in some place. So there's, there's a, an individual component to, to Sabbath keeping and, and to, to finding God's holiness in time, right? Our families need to commit ourselves to those things. But the other aspect that I'd love for us to grow into at JCC is to learn how to share holy times of stopping, holy times of remembering, holy times of celebrating with each other, together, right, as a body. Israel had these high holy days where where they came together as a people, they ate together, they played together, they worshipped together. And so in addition to our, our weekly routine of worship, we need these extended times of retreat and celebration. And it just so happens that in two weeks, you have an opportunity to do that very thing. And our, our Christian Education Committee has worked hard on putting together a fall retreat for this church family. And again, I think that the, the desire and the vision there is to open up a kind of holy time and space. And I know that means stepping away from everything that's going on, even just for 24 hours. That's, that's a big ask. But I'm excited about what happens when from a sundown on a Friday night to roughly sundown on Saturday night. How we'll get to enjoy the gifts of singing together and eating together and creating together and playing together as a people who God has chosen to belong to Him and to each other. So let me encourage you to to think about signing up for that. Let me encourage you to think about practical Sabbath rest for yourself. Let me pray for us, because I think our time is running out for this morning. Lord, I, I just pray that in all that we do, and in particular, our rhythms and routines, as families get ready to go back to school and set their calendars, as a church community, we set our calendars, We think about who we are. May the way we use time, may the way we think about time, may the way we receive time be your gift to us. May it cause us to belong ever more deeply to you, we pray. In the name of Jesus, who is our rest. Amen.